0: Thank you. Hi, my name is Ty. I'm a real alcoholic. think thing sounds like it's talking back to me. Uh, I want to thank Virgil for uh, inviting me down here to share my experience, strength, and hope with you tonight. Uh, for me, it's always a pleasure to be able to to uh, come out and participate in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because I I dearly love this program. And I'm so grateful to have been given a chance at this way of life. And I am even more grateful when I get a chance to do something. Uh, Because what you see up here tonight is not what I did with my life. Uh, What you say up here tonight is what AA has done with the wreckage that I made of my life. Uh, It's kind of like Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. (laughs) All the king's horses and all the king's men. But AA could put it back together again. And uh, that's what's happened with me is that I've had two chances at life. And the first one I managed, and it turned out just a total wreck. And this time around, I'm letting AA and the higher power do the management, and it's working out a hell of a lot better. You know. And I, I'm here tonight at uh, 9 o'clock on, or 8.30 on a Friday night, and I haven't had a drink all day today. You know. And uh, that's a miracle. Uh, It's a miracle that's been happening now for 16 years and 8 months and a week, but the real miracle is that I haven't had a drink all day today because by Friday, by 8.30 on Friday night, I should be out there where the bright lights are glowing. And uh, I should, we used to say, be getting drunk and be somebody. Because uh, I wasn't nobody until I got that drink. Uh, And, you know, I drank for 30 years, and uh, I drank for 30 years in a lot of ignorance about what I was doing. Because uh, I drank for the sole reason that it talks about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I just loved the way alcohol made me feel. I loved the effect that it produced when I drank. And uh, I love getting that, you know, before I drank, I just did not feel okay inside. And I did not feel okay with you. I did not feel okay wherever I happened to be. I always felt like I was just, just a little bit off of being okay. And I just couldn't quite get to that okay. And when I'd have two or three drinks, I'd get to the okay. It would just click and everything would be okay. And uh, I never drank to get drunk. I didn't like to get drunk and get sloppy and get stupid and do all that kind of stuff. I just wanted to get that feeling and then just keep it as long as I could. You know, some days I could uh, keep that feeling going for hours and hours and other days for some reason I'd just overshoot the mark. (laughs) I'd just keep going along, feeling good, and all of a sudden I would be past the mark, and I would be doing stuff that I didn't really want to do. You know. And uh, like Roger, I was talking about, you know, waking up in those places with the rain pouring in the car, on you or something like that. Uh, I can remember having that feeling where everything was okay, and I just fit in with everything all around me, and. Uh, me and a friend of mine were in this bar and we met a couple of girls and you know everything clicked and we just fit right in and I remember we left the bar and the next thing I remember I woke up in the back seat of the bar and my friend and this girl that he had found were gone and I was in the back seat with this other girl and I had absolutely no idea where I was yeah. three o'clock in the morning and uh, drunk as I was so I do the only thing I knew how to do crawl into the front street or driving around in circles till I found out where I was you know. somehow find my way home. You know, and that kind of stuff used to happen. You know. I never started out to have those things happen, they just happened to me. And uh, But still for 30 years I loved the feeling that I got when I had a few drinks of alcohol. And what I never knew was that alcohol doesn't affect everybody the way it affects me. I thought that anybody who drank alcohol got the same kind of reaction to the drinking that I got. And uh, I had to get to this fellowship and to this program to find out that uh, alcohol only affects about 10% of the entire population in the way that it affects me. And uh, that 10% are known as alcoholics. I I hear a lot of times in meetings uh, people talk about those alcoholic feelings of selfishness and self-obsession and feeling apart from and different. No, those aren't necessarily alcoholic feelings. I mean I know a lot of people who are not alcoholics who are out there today and they're just totally self-obsessed, totally selfish, are willing to step on anybody's feet head or whatever else to get whatever they want to get. So that's not an alcoholic thing. Uh, We just seem to be more a little bit more of that, and uh, we seem to be a little more sensitive about that than they are. But the main difference is, is that they don't have anybody, anything that can fix that, and the difference with me is I can have all of those feelings, and a couple of drinks fixes it. It's either okay for me to be self-obsessed and selfish, or I can get interested in something else and not be self-obsessed. The drinks will fix it for me. It will not fix it for those other poor guys out there who are doing the same things and don't have anything to fix it for them. And uh, I didn't know that, that alcohol could fix me like that, and it doesn't fix other people. And uh, I didn't know that this was part of my... uh, Uh, powerlessness over alcohol, Uh, that it does things for me that it doesn't do for non-alcoholics. And that's why I'm so grateful to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because you see, this has been happening to human beings for as long as there have been human beings. Uh, I suppose that somewhere back there when, when people were still living in caves and wearing animal skins for clothing that uh, some caveman probably found a pile of fruit that was just beginning to go rotten and some of that fruit was starting to ferment a little bit and he picked some of it up and ate it and he got that little buzz so he ate a little bit more of it and then he <laughs> went and tried to grab his wife, his friend's wife, and drag her off to his own cave you know? <laughs> and he probably just carried on to such, a, such an excessive extent that they drove him right out of their village. They drove him out of the caves. He probably woke up in the next morning with the sun burning down on him his head pounding like mad and crawled right back to that pile of fruit and started all over again. And that's probably been going on as long as people have found that fermented fruit. And for thousands and thousands of years, the alcoholics have been among the most detested and despised people on the face of the earth, and the rest of the population just find ways to try to... Keep the alcoholic out and keep them as little trouble as possible. And for a long time, they just drive them out into the wilderness. and When they got a little more civilized, they just lock them up in jail. They lock them up, hide them away, do something with them, to keep the alcohol from being too much of alcoholic from being too much of a problem for them. And it's only been in the last 62 years that there has been an effective door for the alcoholic to come back into the mainstream of civilization and that doorway is alcoholics anonymous and that's why i'm grateful to have been able to live at this time when there's an effective doorway for somebody with my disease to come back in and be a, a productive and happy member of society and uh, you know i never started out when i when i was a kid i I guarantee you that alcoholic, uh, alcoholic, anonymous was nowhere on my life's itinerary. You know, this was not some place that I wanted to be. And uh, when I came, got into these rooms for the first time, uh, I didn't come in and look around and see your bright, smiling faces and your shining eyes and give that big sigh of relief and say, Ah, at last I'm home. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> I came in looking for the exit sign, you know, I said, well, how did I get out of here, what's the quickest way out? Because I did not want to be here, I knew that I never felt like I belonged any place, but this was not the place that I wanted to belong. And that not wanting to belong or not feeling like I belonged started when I was, I don't know how old, you know, as soon as I, my earliest memories are feelings that, you know, other people seemed to be okay and seemed to be able to get along better. And I just felt like I was having a lot harder time of it than anybody else was. And I, I seemed to have this awareness of things that I did that people weren't supposed to do. This awareness goes back again to my earliest memories, one of the earliest memories that I have of my, of my childhood. I was probably about four or five years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, and myself and another gir- little girl that was my age. and her brother who was about a year older were in this vacant house and we had all our clothes off. And I I have no idea what we were doing in there with our clothes off, but I knew that we were doing something wrong. And I've been told since then that we sure as hell weren't doing whatever it was we thought we were doing. <laughs> but I was guilty and I was ashamed and it was something that that I never told anybody else about until I wrote my fourth step in this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was something that inside I just felt so shameful about. And from that earliest memory of my childhood there were things that just piled up that were shameful, that were shameful, that were shameful, that just made me feel different then. I knew that I could never be like the rest of the people because I had all of this stuff in my head all these things going on inside me that I couldn't talk to anybody about and couldn't tell anybody about. And all these things that I knew that nobody else thought about or nobody else did except me. See, Now, of course, now I was, after 16 years in this fellowship, I've listened to enough inventories to know that, you know, a lot of my stuff was really garden variety stuff. That <laughs> there is nothing remarkable at all about the things that I did. But But I came here thinking that I had become the most you know, the most rotten and evil and vile person. And the fact that my father was a Baptist preacher didn't help any of that either. You know, if there are any recovering Baptists here, you know what I mean. That uh, that Baptist religion, they tell you that uh, you don't look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you know. And I knew I was looking at women with lust in my eyes before I ever knew what lust was. <laughs> and, uh, but I knew that I was looking at them the wrong way. And uh, they tell you in that church that if you even think about it, you're just as guilty as if you did it. Yeah. And, uh, and I was always a great thinker. And so I thought about thought about it a lot. Yeah. And uh, then later on, I found out that their doing was more fun than thinking. And so then I knew that I was just that I was going to go to hell. And uh, the book that my father preached out of told me that I was supposed to be a God-fearing person, and I was God-fearing, all right. I was terrified of that God that he talked about. And so as soon as I could, I started educating that God out of existence, and I started finding myself something else to believe in so that I didn't have to walk around with all that guilt. And uh, so I... I uh, managed to do that. I managed to find enough philosophy books, so I managed to find enough different types of reading to convince myself that you didn't have to believe in that God that he believed in. So by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I was a stark, raving, evangelical agnostic. <laughs> and I to convince everybody else of the righteousness of agnosticism. And uh, and it's a hell of a way to go. I. Yeah. Uh, Basically, I I drank because I liked the way I drank, it it made me feel. I drank until I just couldn't drink anymore. I drank until there was no way that I could deny that alcohol was causing all kinds of problems in my life. I went through all those stages of of drinking to feel okay, then drinking because I couldn't feel okay without it, and then drinking just to maintain. Uh, And it got in the way of... uh, Uh, My family life, I had along the way gotten married. I had a beautiful wife, had two beautiful children. Uh, Alcohol can't do anything uh, to you until it's done something for you, and alcohol did a lot for me because, like I told you before, when I had a few drinks I felt okay. I felt all right with the world. I got even. And uh, when I drank alcohol I felt like I was six feet two inches tall, and I am. (laughs) I just never felt like it until I had a few drinks. <laughs> and, uh, but I, early on in my, in my working career I got into work that involved a lot of sales, and all of my life I've been terrified of people. All of my life I've been terrified of anybody that's got any kind of authority. And then when I got into sales work, they told me that I had to go out on Wilshire Boulevard and go into those buildings and talk to the heads of these big companies to convince them that they needed what I had. And uh, I knew that if I went out there in the morning, I was going to stick a hand out. that were just going to be sopping wet and make a real impression on them. So what I'd do is I'd stay in the office until about noon, at noon it was socially acceptable to go up to the restaurant and have a couple of martinis for lunch, and after I had a couple of martinis for lunch I could walk down that boulevard and I could talk to anybody. And so alcohol did a lot for me, and it enabled me to start a fairly good career with that business, and uh, still I didn't like The idea of going out and meeting all these people that I was still terrified of, and so what I'd do is I'd hang around the office as much as I could, and I'd talk to the people who were newer at the job than I was, and I'd tell them how I was doing all this wonderful work, that then it would put enough pressure on me that I'd have to go out and do some of it. But the bosses thought that I was doing a great job of working with these new people, and so they started promoting me. And after about seven years, they had promoted me until where I was managing their Southern California office and had a whole bunch of people working for me all the way from Santa Barbara to Newport Beach. And uh, my wife and I had moved off up, up in the hills above La Crescenta and, and in the LA area. So we had a swimming pool in the backyard. Uh, had the station wagon, the boats in the driveway, all that kind of stuff. And it looked like the great American dream come true. And the only problem was that I didn't really have any of that stuff. It all had me. Because every time something new came along, it was something that I felt that they were going to take away from me sooner or later, and I had to do whatever I could to try and protect it in the meantime before they took it away. But still, down inside, I knew that sooner or later they were going to find out that I was only fooling them, that I didn't really know anything about all this stuff that I was doing. And as soon as they found out I didn't really know what I was doing, they were going to start taking it away. And my drinking just got worse and worse. And it got to the point where uh, sometimes I'd stop in for a drink after work uh, and get home four or five days later. (laughs) Because uh, I really reached that point where there was just no way of accurately predicting what my behavior was going to be once I took a drink. I might stop in and have a drink and drink for an hour or two and go home, or I might stop in to have a drink and drink for three or four days and not get home. And uh, my my, my wife lost patience with that uh, very quickly. (laughs) She thought that I was supposed to be there every night. And... uh, so one night uh, after I'd been gone about three days and I came home and I walked through the kitchen to that house and the oven door was hanging a little bit open and I looked inside and there was a plate of roast beef and potatoes and some vegetables that she had left in there for me to eat. And I hadn't been home for three or four days. And I sat down at the kitchen table and I had really had some compassion for her and I wondered, you know, is she putting out food for me every night not knowing where I've been, not knowing if I'm coming home, not knowing who I've been with or what I've been doing. And it's cheap leaving food out like that. And I just thought that that really just wasn't right. And uh, so the next morning after she had gone to work and the kids had gone off to school, I the only thing that I could do at that point in my life. I sat down at the dining room table and wrote her a note and told her that she wouldn't have to do things like leave food out for me and she wouldn't have to worry about what time I was going to be home or what I was doing because I just wasn't going to be coming home anymore. And I took my clothes and my things and threw them in the back seat of my car and I ran away from home. And uh, that was the end of that family as a family unit. We never did get back together. Uh, we ended up getting divorced and uh, she took her share of the profits that we made on the property that we had bought and moved down to Orange County with the two kids and uh, started a new life. And uh, I took my share of the profits down on Wilshire Boulevard and I don't know what happened to it. <laughs> it's down along Wilshire Boulevard somewhere. <laughs> and uh, that's the way an alcoholic like me is with money. And I. Uh, and I did that because I thought that trying to keep up all that property and trying to keep up all those appearances in that neighborhood where I knew that everybody else belonged and I was there on all false pretenses, I knew that all that pressure was what was making me drink as much as that I drank. But what happened when I left that family was I found out that that family was one of the outside controls on my drinking that helped to put a little bit of a check on my drinking. About a year and a half after that I decided there was that high pressure job that I was working at that was making me drink so much. If I didn't have all of those people to worry about and only had myself to take care of, I wouldn't have to drink so much. And so I quit that job that I'd been at for almost 13 years and I was making good money. They did, had no idea. My boss was in Chicago, Illinois and had no idea that... Uh, I was getting to work some days, if I got to work at all, at at 9 or 10 o'clock and leaving by 11 or 12 o'clock because I had it set up so that somebody in that office knew how to do everything that I was supposed to do. And uh, I'd come in just long enough to give a few quick instructions and I'd be off to do whatever I wanted to do. And uh, I'm told today that's called management. <laughs> 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 then I thought it was just goofing off. <laughs> and But that's what I'd do. And uh, the job got done, and the people in my home office had no idea of how I was getting it done, that I wasn't spending that much time there. But still it took me five months to quit that job because they didn't want me to leave because we were making money for them. And uh, so they gave me a fully paid leave of absence and told me to go on out. They knew I was getting divorced and they thought that that was probably what the problem was. So they said, go on out and take care of your personal life and then you'll be ready to come back and go to work again. Now, if you want to kill an alcoholic, giving them a paycheck and telling them you don't have to come in and do anything for it is one good way to do it. Now, they were (laughs) mailing the paycheck to me and I had no place to go except to the bars or the golf course or whatever else. And so I drank around the clock for the five months that they continued doing that. Uh, after they were sending me the checks for about uh, about a month, they sent me the checks and never heard a word from me. After about a month, my boss called me and he says, "Well, how are you feeling?" He says, "You ready to come back to work?" And I told him, "No, not yet." <laughs> and another month goes by and he called me again. He says, "How are you doing?" And I said, "I'm not ready yet." And and he waited again, called me after the third month, and after he called me the third time in three months, I started thinking this guy's putting a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> That's the way my head works. And uh, after five months, he told me, said that he said, Dad, he said Sai, if you don't come back to work, we're going to have to to stop paying you." I said, "All right, I told you I wasn't coming back to work when I left there." And so they stopped the paychecks and. Uh, I'm the kind of alcoholic that, you know, I don't do a lot of planning for a rainy day when I'm out there in the bar impressing people I don't know with money that I don't really have. And uh, so I didn't have a whole big nest egg set aside to carry me through any rainy days. And I learned very quickly after they stopped paying me that I was willing to violate every moral and ethical principle that I ever had to get enough to keep me going with what I needed. And uh, I was willing to listen to any money-making proposition that came down the road and I wasn't concerned with the legalities of it because for me there was only one sin left in the world and that was getting caught. So whatever proposition that came along, I would just have two things to consider. How much are we going to get and what's the chance of getting caught? If that seemed to work out okay, you could count me in. And, uh, And I lived like that for about two years every now and then I'd try to get back into something a little more on the up and up and uh just couldn't quite keep off keep away from the drinking long enough to do it and uh, after 2 years I finally realized that you no know, it was just about the time that I left that family that uh that I came to my first alcoholics anonymous meeting uh, because just before, not too long before I left that family, uh, I managed to pull one of those things, like it talks about in the book, where we picked the absolutely worst possible time to get drunk. And uh, I was supposed to host a meeting of that company's managers from all over the Western Territory of the United States, and I was supposed to meet them out of, at the uh, Hilton Hotel in Los Angeles, in, uh, Studio City. We we're supposed to begin the meetings at around 7 o'clock on, um, on a Monday morning. And so what I did on Sunday night instead of going to the hotel, like I was supposed to do, I went out and got drunk. I got home about 4.30 in the morning, and I knew that there's no way in the world I was going to be able to get down to that hotel in any kind of shape by 6 o'clock. So I told my wife, I said, well, would you call down the hotel about 6.30 and get my boss on the phone and tell him that I'm sick, that I won't be able to come in, and till maybe about noon. And she says, no, Ty, she says, I'm not going to lie for you anymore. Now, to the best of my ability, she had never been to any Al Anon meetings, but boy, that sounded suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, if you want them to hear that lie, you're going to have to tell it to them yourself. And uh, so I had to wait till about 6:30 and muster up my courage and reach down inside like I'm able to do when I really have to and get on the phone and uh, sound sick enough and straight enough to convince my boss that I'm sick and I can't come in. I said I'll try to make it by noon. He says no. He says says, if you're sick, he says stay home, take care of yourself. Maybe you'll be able to make it tomorrow. And uh, sure enough, by Tuesday I was able to make it, but. Uh, after I hung up the phone, my wife says, Now will you admit that you need some help? And I thought, Boy, is this a crock. You know, <laughs> Twenty minutes ago I asked her to help me out and call those people, and she wouldn't do that. Then she turned around and said, You need help. you know. And uh, so she called uh, the, the number for Alcoholics Anonymous in, in, San, in uh, Glendale. And uh, they sent us down to the old Maryland club and got down there about noon and uh, some guy in the coffee shop handed me a cup of coffee and they had cups with, kind of cups with saucers. And so I'm standing there at my coffee cup and he looks at me and says, when do you have your last drink? And I said, about four o'clock this morning, I think. And he says, wow, he says, I couldn't have held a coffee cup like that on my first day. He said, I've been shaking too bad. I couldn't hold it. And I said, see? <laughs> I don't belong here. I'm not like these people. And so I went to meetings for a couple of weeks, and uh, a couple of guys took me under their wings and really tried to get me into this program, and they shared with me. And one of them told me that he says, you know, he says, I never went to, to bed unless I had something in the house to wake up to in the morning, because I knew I was going to be shaking when I woke up in the morning, I was going to have to have something to get me started." And I says I don't drink in the morning. Another guy says, uh, I can't go to bed at night, he says, until I, everything's gone. As long as there's something left to drink, he says I'm going to stay at it until it's done. I got a bar in my house with 30 quarts of booze in there, there's no way, I, I'm not like these people. And I did love some of the old timers now, because this was in 1976, and the group that I was going to, some of those guys had gotten sober back in 1940-41 uh, in that era, and they'd been doing their drinking during the Depression. And some of those guys in the Depression who were out roaming around the country, they, they really did some neat stuff in their drinking. You know, I mean, they they stole railroad trains and battleships and all this really <laughs> neat kind of stuff. You know. And, And I've never done any of that kind of stuff, but I just knew that I wasn't like these people. And so I found the exit sign and I got out of there because AA had done what what I wanted it to do anyway. I'd gone there to get my wife off my back. After two weeks, she was off my back. Uh, I was completely squared away with the people at work. Alcoholics Anonymous worked wonders, so I didn't need it anymore. And uh, I didn't go to any more Alcoholics Anonymous meetings until I ended up in the hospital about... uh, Two and a half years later, uh, about two and a half years later, after I quit that company that had a wonderful health plan, and of course I didn't bother to keep up the premiums on that, and uh, I reached a point where uh, I'd be walking down the street and my legs would just stop working. I'd be walking down the street, and next thing I know, I just kind of crumbled down into a mass. And uh, I never knew when this was going to happen, you know, and I thought, well, maybe the drinking's doing something to it. But it got worse when I tried to stop drinking, so I didn't try to stop drinking. It just kept getting worse. You know. And uh, so finally one day it just got so bad that a that, uh, friend that I was living with and another guy took me out to General Hospital in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, General Hospital, I think it had to be the worst place in the world to go. Those doctors out there don't know anything, you know, they... They teach at USC, but they don't know anything. (laughs) And they spent about six or seven hours running around doing all kinds of tests on me, taking x-rays and uh, doing electrocardiograms and electroencephalograms and everything else. And finally, after running all those tests, they couldn't find anything what was wrong, so they stuck me up in the alcohol ward. (laughs) And uh, I was convinced that they didn't know what they were doing. But actually what I had was something that's called uh, alcoholic neuropathy, I believe it is, where the nerve endings begin going dead, the alcohol kills them, and you lose control of the muscles. And I ended up spending uh, seven days in that hospital. that got me back on my feet. I went to AA meetings for about a month, and I didn't drink for about three months. And uh, after three months of not drinking, I thought, hey, I'm getting along pretty good. I'm out playing golf. I'm walking the stairs. Everything's going okay. I'm not having any problems. I must not be an alcoholic. You know, alcoholics have problems when they stop drinking. And so I figured I could have a couple of beers on the golf course, and I had a couple of beers, and nothing happened. And after about three weeks of having a couple beers on the golf course, I thought, well, there's nothing wrong with having a drink before dinner and maybe a little glass of wine with dinner and maybe a couple of shots after dinner. And, you know, within two months after the time that I had that first beer on the golf course, I was right back where I started. Drinking. And instead of going to the hospital, I stopped drinking on my own and started coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And for the next three years, I'd go in and out of these doors like this, a revolving door like you heard about and uh, I didn't really get all that involved in what they told me to do, and you know, I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't get a sponsor because I knew what a sponsor was really. I, I knew what you said a sponsor was, but I knew that a sponsor is really somebody who is going to try to get into my shit. <laughs> And I had this big top-secret stamp right in the middle of my forehead that there, and then nobody's getting in there. See? And I knew that that was what a sponsor was going to do. Is he was going to try to get in there and mess around with that stuff, and so I didn't get a sponsor. I thought about it a couple of times because of when that urge had come to start drinking again, I'd think, well, maybe I'd better get a sponsor. And I'd think, Oh no, I can do this, and said, this time it's going to be different anyhow. And uh, so I didn't get a sponsor. Uh, I did take a lot of inventories during those three years. and Unfortunately, none of them were mine. <laughs> I took everybody else's. I didn't take mine. I could, And I could look around these rooms and they used to say a lot, they hear a lot in these rooms that, you know, some of us are sicker than others. And I could look around and I could say, yeah, there's one over there. and that one over there. And I was, uh, it wasn't until I got here for real that I stopped looking around when I heard him say some of us are sicker than others because I know that I'm just about the sickest one here and uh, that went on until and the drinking got worse. the periods when I could drink with any kind of success at all got shorter and shorter. the drunks got longer uh, and I was just going down down the hill and I knew that I was never going to have enough money to fix everything because I had this belief from as long as I could remember that if you got enough money you can take care of anything. And I don't know how much that mon- money that is because there were times that I walked around the streets with thousands of dollars in my pocket but I still didn't have enough. So I still didn't know what enough was, I just knew that I was never going to have enough. And I knew that AA wouldn't work for me because I'd been around here now for about six years and nothing had happened. And uh, so I decided that I could do like they told me in that hospital, that if you keep on drinking the way that I was drinking, pretty soon you're going to have seizures or convulsions, you're going to die. And so I decided to drink myself to death. And I, I holed up in my apartment, and for six weeks I did nothing but drink a 100-proof vodka, Smirnoff Black Label Vodka. And uh, I'd buy it by the quart, and I'd drink it till I passed out, and as soon as I came to, I'd grab the bottle and start drinking again, because I'd long since passed the time where I could shut off my head by drinking. The only way I could shut off my head would be to just knock myself completely into unconsciousness. And as soon as I woke up, that was my next goal, was to get enough of that stuff down me again to knock myself into unconsciousness again. And I, when I'd wake up and the bottle would be anything less than half full, it was time to make that trip to the liquor store because I did not want that bottle to go empty. Because I'd gotten sober cold turkey or stopped drinking cold turkey enough times during those last uh, four or five years that but I didn't want to do that again. I didn't think I could do it again because when I stopped drinking after drinking the way that I drink, two, three quarts of, of vodka a day, uh, within an hour I'm just all over, inside and outside, and I'm throwing up everything that I put in my mouth, and I'm crawling around on my hands and knees because my legs won't work, and I can't go to sleep and I can't really be awake, and I just stay there in kind of a twilight zone for four or five or six days until it finally passes and the shakes go off and I get enough strength back to be able to get out and and do something else. And I've done that enough times that I didn't want that bottle to go empty. On the last day that I drank, which was March 7th in 1982, I was headed down to the liquor store to get that next bottle to make sure that that didn't happen because there was only about three inches left in that bottle that I had in my apartment. And I got halfway across the street in front of my house and in front of my apartment and all of a sudden I realized that I was going down. (laughs) And, you know, it's one of those kind of slow-motion realizations that you're falling. You know, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't put my hands on I couldn't do anything. Just kind of dumbly watched the pavement come up and hit me in the face. <laughs> and then my head said, you're down on the ground. Get up. You know, and I tried to get up, and I'd fall down again. And I was completely aware of everything that was going on, and my body was just too drunk for me to be able to control it. And I tried three or four times to get back up up on my feet, and I'd fall down every time. And finally I crawled out of the street on my hands and knees, and I was sitting there on the curb, looking back at the apartment where I lived, wondering, how did I get here? How could this happen to me? This can't happen to me because I know too much, I've read too much, I'm too smart, I've been around too long. This happens to people down on Skid Row, this happens to other people, this can't happen to me. There's a lady pulling a little shopping cart along the, down the sidewalk and she saw me sitting there in the curb and my glasses had broke and I had a little streak of blood running down the side of my face. And She took one look at me and she took her cart and just pulled it clear out in the intersection to get around me. You know? I'm a sensitive guy and when people <laughs> avoid me like that it hurts my feelings. She, she was treating me like I was just some kind of common drunk or something. <laughs> and that's what I was. I was just a common drunk. It didn't make any difference that my rent was paid in that apartment, that I had a car underneath there in the garage, that I had some clothes in the closet and I had some money in the bank. None of that made any difference that I still had some stuff because I was just a drunk down in the street. And uh, I ended up crawling up a lamppost to get back on my feet. I uh, got back across to my apartment, got in the elevator, and got how I lived on the sixth floor and walked into the kitchen. That three inches of the vodka was still standing in that bottle. And without anything thought at all, I took the cap off and I poured it down the sink. And I think that that was my higher powers interference because given any thought on my own, because as soon as I stood there and my head kicked back in again, I said, <laughs> My God, why would I do that? <laughs> you know, I might have been able to taper off a little bit. You know, I, I'm a good taperer. I taper off, taper on. You know. I stood there at that empty bottle and, and I thought, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. But it's going to happen here. And I walked into the living room and I sat on the sofa and my big book had been laying on the coffee table all the time during that last drink. And, I picked it up and set it on its back, and it opened almost to the same page that it's opened up here today, to the first page called A Vision for You. And on that page it says that for most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means a release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with the friends and feeling that, that life is good. It says not so for us in those last days of heavy drinking. It says good old days were gone forever, that they're just a memory. It said there would be an insistent yearning to enjoy life like we once did, and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control might enable us to do that. It said there would always be one more attempt and one more failure. It says that the less people tolerated us, the more we would withdraw from society and from life itself. And then that pitiful vapor that is loneliness settles down on us and it thickens and becomes blacker. It says that some of us will seek out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. And the momentarily we could, But then would come oblivion and the awful awakening to face those hideous four horsemen of terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Then down at the bottom of that page, it says that unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand. (laughs) I understood, because they couldn't have painted a clearer picture of my life on that day than it's on that page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I knew what was going to happen during those next six or seven or eight days. I knew how with was sick, I got, and some days I could, sometimes I could read two or three lines, sometimes the whole thing would be a blur, sometimes I might be able to read a page or two. But in that chapter it told me what I would find in this fellowship if I decided to take a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. It told me that in these rooms my imagination would be fired. It said that here I would find my release from care, boredom, and worry, and that here I would find friends that would last for a lifetime. And that's what I found in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that chapter is what kindled enough spirit for me to make it through that last uh, withdrawal from alcohol. And I believe that it has going to be, I know that, that I don't ever have to take another drink of alcohol the rest of my life. That's something that I've learned as a result of taking these steps. When I finally got back to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was at Wilshire and Plymouth on a Saturday night in Los Angeles. When that meeting got over, I was standing out in the middle of that floor and I'm still shaking about a 4.5 on the Richter scale. i <laughs> And this little guy walks up to me, stands about this tall, and he stood up there, looked up at me, and he says, how are you doing? (laughs) I've been drinking vodka, 100-proof vodka, for six weeks and not been eating very much. And I weigh about 140 pounds, and I'm shaking like mad. You know, it's kind of hard to say Fine. But I didn't expect to tell him what I told him either, because I know that no human being had ever heard me say those three words, because when he said, how are you doing, I just looked back at him and I said, I need help. And that little guy just reached out and he put his arms around me and he just stood there and he held me. Then he said, I'll do anything I can to help you stay sober. Now I heard words like that in these rooms all the time when I've been coming to these meetings, and I never believed him. Because I know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. I know that any by time somebody's going to give you something, they want something back. And I was always afraid that whatever it was that they wanted back was going to be more than I wanted to give back and so I couldn't accept the help that was freely offered to me in these rooms. But I've also heard that Alcoholics Anonymous is a language of the heart where the heart speaks and the heart listens. And that night that man's heart spoke and my heart heard him because I believed that he would do anything he could to help me stay sober and that he wouldn't want anything back. And it's been, like I said, 16 years, 8 months and a week now since that time and he has never once reneged on that promise. Not once has he not been there. There have been times when things have happened in my life. Uh, he moved about six or seven years ago down to Desert Hot Springs when he retired. And there have been times that just little things have come up. And I've called him and said, oh, this has happened. He said, do you want me to come in? Do you want me to come to town? I tell him, no, you don't need to come to town. There's been times when I've been just so overwhelmed with gratitude for what that man has done for me. I tell him, you know, I just don't know how I can pay you back. And he says, Ty, we don't pay back in Alcoholics Anonymous. We pass it on. He says, one of these days somebody's going to come through that door just as sick as you came through it. And that person's going to stick out his hand and ask for help. And then you're going to tell him, I'll do anything I can to help you stay sober and then do it. And when we were standing out in the middle of that floor that night in the middle of Wiltshire Plymouth and I'm shaking like mad and I told this man I need help and he said he'd do anything that he could to help me stay sober and I said, well, what should I do? And he said, take these chairs and put them over in that rack. <laughs> <laughs> then he said, go around and if you see any coffee cups or ashtrays laying around, pick them up and take them to the back of the room. And after I did that, I said, well, what, what do you want me to do now? And he says, there's another meeting here tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, be here. And so I met him there at that meeting at 8 o'clock, and when the meeting got over, I said, well, am I supposed to be doing something? And he said, yes, you're supposed to be taking these chairs and putting them over in the rack." <laughs> And Monday night he sent me to another meeting, and when he met me there, by this time, I'm I'm a quick learner, (laughs) he didn't even have to tell me, I just automatically started taking chairs over the rack. By Tuesday night I had it down (laughs) pat. But then he did get me into the steps, and he didn't waste any time, he got me right into the steps. So we talked about step one, we figured out why I was powerless over alcohol, not because I'm a moral leper, not because I am just the, the rottenest thinking person in the world, I am Powerless over alcohol because I am bodily and mentally different from the non-alcoholic, purely and simply that. I have this disease, this allergy that manifests itself as a craving that is absolutely beyond my ability to resist. That's why I am powerless over alcohol. Has nothing to do with my thinking, has nothing to do with anything else. My thinking only enters into it that I'm not thinking about the drink that I'm having, I'm thinking about the next one. I'm thinking is the next one going to be okay. I have this obsession with alcohol that the non-alcoholic doesn't have. I have this inability to connect the problems that I have with the drinking that I'm doing. I have to put something in between the drinking and the problem in order to preserve my right to drink alcohol. And uh, that was so clearly pointed out to me. Uh, when I got arrested for the last time for driving under the influence of alcohol, because at the same time that they arrested, I got arrested five times, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, the last time I got arrested, they arrested a non-alcoholic guy at the same time. See, non-alcoholics sometimes get arrested for driving under the influence because sometimes they'll drink a little bit too much, they'll drive, they get arrested. And uh, I knew that this guy was a non-alcoholic because he's saying those stupid things that only non-alcoholics say. Like, I knew I shouldn't have had that last drink because I was starting to feel it, you know. (laughs) I'm not going to have the first one unless I know I'm going to feel it, And he says, I knew I should have left that party a little bit sooner. And I knew I should have let somebody else drive. And I'm over on the other side and they're rolling my fingers around on that ink pad and I'm thinking I knew I shouldn't have taken Sepulveda. (laughs) (laughs) Now see that's why this guy gets get arrested once for driving under the influence and I get arrested five times because he made the connection. He knew that he drank, he drove, he got arrested. I knew that the drinking had nothing to do with it if I'd just taken some other street besides the Sepulveda. I've always got to find something to put between the drinking and the problem or else I have to take a look at the drinking. So I think that drinking's okay because it makes me fit. It makes me feel good. See, getting drunk is something that's caused by something my boss said to me, something my wife did to me. If the people would leave me alone, I wouldn't drink too much. I wouldn't get drunk. I wouldn't get in trouble. That's the way my head works, I am bodily and mentally different from the non-alcoholic. And I had a problem with steps two and three on this program when I first came in because, like I told you, I was just this blithering agnostic fool. And uh, so my sponsor convinced me to take the, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as my first higher power because I couldn't stand to even utter the word God. And uh, at our home group, we had this one side of the room down the left side of the room where there was a string of people who sat there, like I said, had gotten sober back in 1940, 41, 42, 43. Now, this was in 1982, and these guys have been sober just forever, and sometimes you could count up 1,200 years of sobriety sitting down that wall. And my sponsor said, how do all these guys tell you they stay sober? And I said, well, they, they say they do this program with 12 steps. And he says, can you give me one reason why they'd lie to you? See, I've been around long enough to know that these guys didn't even have a special parking place. I knew none of them got paid anything. I knew none of them got anything special. And I couldn't think of a reason why they would lie to me. And he said, if, if you can't think of a reason to lie to you, is there a possibility that they might be telling you the truth or he's telling you what they believe? And I said, well, maybe there is. He says, now, if something like that can keep somebody like Al Marino sober for 40 years, you think maybe it could keep you sober for 24 hours? And I said, well, maybe it could. See? Now, as soon as I agreed to do that, he made me say the third step prayer with him. And get down on our knees and go through all the these and thous, and I turn my life over to thee and build with me and all this stuff. And, and he held my hand, for Christ's sake, while we were doing it. And I felt like the biggest hypocrite in the world because those these and thous just really grated on me. And when we finished saying that prayer and we stood up and I thought, I can't believe I did that. And yet for some reason I felt a little bit better. And he told me to go do step four. And I went through step four and it was a painful, painful experience to write down all those things and all those rotten things that I thought about myself. I found out that I kept going back to use that third step prayer because he told me to do that. Every time I got something I'd get to a point where I knew I couldn't go on and he'd chase me back to that third step prayer and I'd say it one more time and I'd be able to get one more line on the page. And when I finally finished writing that and realized that I had overcome all the impulses to do like I always did and to shade the truth a little bit to make myself look better and I'd managed to get that all down. In an absolutely truthful form, I looked at it and I said, "I can't believe I actually did that." And then I wasn't I couldn't wait to read that thing that I knew I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't wait to read it to him. And when I read it to him, finished it, all those rotten things about myself, he took one look at me and he said, "See, you're not as bad as you thought you were." And I thought, you know, how can he say that he hasn't been listening because i just poured out all this rotten stuff to him? And he says, you're not bad. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, if you were really that bad, none of this stuff would have bothered you. If you were really that bad, you would have thought that all of these things were okay. And he said, the fact that you don't think that they're okay tells me that somewhere inside there is a much better person than the way that you've been acting. And he said the purpose of the rest of these steps is to uncover all of the garbage that you and the rest of the world have put on that better person inside. And we're never going to get completely down to that pure essence that you were created with, but every day that we work at it we'll get just a little bit closer. And every day that we get a little bit closer, you'll become just a little bit better person. And that's what I've been trying to do during these past 16 years, is just uncover a little bit more of that and discard a little bit more of that on a regular basis. And I find that one of the easiest ways to do that is working with people newer than myself and helping them to take the 12 steps the way that they were taught to me. Uh, I thought thought that uh, by the time I finished taking the 12 steps, I thought that all of those old ideas like the book talks about were gone. I thought they were, but I'll tell you they're not, I'll guarantee you one thing, that nothing will make your good old ideas sound any worse than hearing them from a newcomer. Because when a newcomer tells me some of the things that I thought were still pretty good, I thought, geez, that's really not too smart. Is it, you know? And so working with newcomers helps me find out more about me than it does about them. Because I'm really not that interested in finding out that much about the newcomers because uh, they need to find it out for themselves. But they help me find out more about me every time that I work with them. And so I do that a lot. And uh, I, this is kind of fun to come out and do this kind of stuff, but this is just a sharing a little bit about what I have found out about me. I found out what a terribly fearful person I was. And the biggest fear that I had was is that somebody might find out that I was afraid of something. And today I'm not afraid of anything, but I'm not afraid to tell anybody that I am afraid. And It's kind of a, a turnaround situation, but... Uh, Today I live a reasonably comfortable life most of the time. Today I know that as long as I keep on doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing here, that I don't have to worry about my career, I don't have to worry about money, I don't have to worry about any of that other kind of stuff because I was promised in step three, That that my new employer will provide everything I need as long as I stay close to him and try to perform his work well. And that's been my experience over these past 16 years, is that I don't have to worry about that. Besides, it doesn't do any good to worry. Worrying never did a thing. So I just try to do this work and somehow or other everything else always gets taken care of. And, uh, you know, one day when I was reading in the A.A. Comes of Age book, I'll just finish with this. So uh, my meditation, my meditation has become just a very important part of my sobriety. Uh, because somewhere between steps one, this blithering agnostic came to know that there is a power greater than any human power that holds this universe together. I don't need to go much farther than that and to say that I know that there is such a power. And somewhere between Steps 1 and 7, I came to believe that that power had a definite personal interest in me. And by the time I reach Step 12, Step 12 has the greatest promise that this program has to offer, where it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that's what happened to me. My spiritual awakening was just an opening of my mind to the point where I am now willing to accept information out of this book from a lot of other sources. Uh, My daily meditation has become a great source of of, uh, strength, of hope for me, uh, because it just sets the whole day right and puts me into a conscious contact with that power. I always have a subconscious contact I have to work to keep the contact conscious and that way it can stay with me throughout the day so that any time during the day when I become a little bit troubled that then I have this conscious contact and know that okay, why am I concerned with this? All the problems that I have today are when I take something and make it more important than it's supposed to be. Every day I'll take something and I'll just put it right up here to where it's almost in like a, uh, the most important thing in the world. And just as long as I make it that important, I've got a problem. I worry about it. Everything's going wrong. I get afraid. As soon as I take it out of that position of importance, it's no longer a problem. It's just a situation, a detail, and, and those can be handled. uh, But one day when I was reading in that A.A. Comes of Age book and getting ready to do my meditation, I read about how the, uh, the convention where they adopted our circle and triangle logo is the official logo of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it tells about how that circle in the logo stands for the whole world of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an unbroken circle that circles the world. And the triangle that's inside of that circle stands for the three legacies of recovery, unity, and service. And uh, when I was doing my meditation afterwards, the thought came to me that a triangle is structurally one of the most solid configurations that there is. As long as all three legs of a triangle are in place, it's almost indestructible. You can put pressure on the sides and on all points, and, and the triangle just won't collapse. But if you take one leg out of a triangle, the other two can be just clapped with hardly any effort because it needs all three legs to give it its strength. And I think that that's pretty much the way it is with our fellowship and with our program, that as long as we pay equal attention to all three legacies of recovery, unity, and service, that our program and our fellowship will withstand pressure on all sides and on all points and we'll continue to support that unbroken circle that circles the world. And when we went to our meeting that night and we got up to say the closing prayer, we formed around the room and I realized that we had formed out into a circle. And as we reached out to join hands, I reached and realized that we were all joined together by threes because there is one person on this side of me and one person on this side with myself in the middle. And that those three people joined like that represented the three legacies of this program because it takes somebody with recovery to give it to me. And if I don't pass it on to somebody else in service, I can't keep it because you got to give it away if you want to keep it. And our hands were joined together in unity. And so if you ever find yourself in that circle next to me at the end of a meeting, and if I feels like I'm holding your hands a little bit tighter than somebody else holds your hand, it's because I do hold on real tight when I'm in that circle. And I hold on real tight for a couple of reasons. And one of them is that, that when I'm joined with you like that, it's when I feel most closely connected to a power greater than any human power that first came to me through those hands of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hold on real tight because I don't want to lose a single one of you. And I certainly don't want you to lose me, so please keep coming back.